Welcome to the 2019 Good News Church Global Outreach Conference. Let's now join the session. The, the doctrine of transubstantiation, that's the technical term, uh, was uh, formulated in the 13th century. Uh, so in the Middle Ages, it was not part of the early uh, developments of Christian thought. There have been trends within within the early church that uh, began to use the word, the real presence, the very Jesus, the body of Christ. Well, that goes back to John's uh, John's Gospel, chapter six, when. Uh, Jesus says, unless you eat my body, but we have to understand it in the context of the, the language that John uses, or Jesus uses in the Gospel of John. Uh, the, the many images and pictures that Jesus uses, I am the door, I am the, I am the good shepherd, and I am the one you have to eat in order to have fellowship with me. So it makes sense in the context of the rich imaginary of, that Jesus uses in, in that gospel. They have taken it literally and they have come to the, the doctrine of transubstantiation as a way to explain how that mechanics uh, works out. So that uh, in the 13th century they came with this idea that as the priest consecrates the host, a miracle takes place to the point that that host, that piece of bread, is no longer a piece of bread, although it appears to be a piece of bread, but in reality, in substance, it has become the body of Christ. No longer the bleeding body of Christ, but the sacramental body of Christ, and we are entering very deep water here about you know, sacramental theology, but that, but that explains the fact that once the host is consecrated, it, it, it's no longer bread, it has become the body of Christ, and the body of Christ needs to be eaten in order to, be, to have fellowship with. And in this way, the Catholic Church developed his, uh, its uh, sensuality. It's being very much close to the senses. So, away from faith received by grace and towards a materialized understanding of grace that needs physical objects to be received. So that if you enter a Catholic church, it is meant to be a sensual experience. You have the, the holy water, and you have to cross with the holy water in order for your fingers to be touched by a material object. You have the, the incense that speaks to your nostrils and you have to breathe that, sensually breathe that experience of grace. Then you have the pictures, the images, the statues, and your sight is engaged sensually to experience that grace. And Ultimately and supremely, you have the, the experience of eating the, the body of Christ through uh, the host. And uh, uh, 
this is also the way, this is also an explanation that accounts for the fact that for Catholics, it is very difficult to accept that grace comes to us by faith alone, because that cuts all these material, physical uh, objects that the church manages and administers and uh, gives back to the spirit the supremacy, the freedom to act his own will without needing an, in, an human mediator to uh, deliver the grace. And uh, then it also explains the, the reason why after the, the host is consecrated, that piece of bread is no longer bread, but has become the body of Christ, and so it can be worshipped. It's the so-called Eucharistic worship or adoration. The leftovers are then taken to the another part of the church where they are displayed for the, the faithful to worship the body of Christ because they are no longer it's no longer bread. It has become the body of Christ. So to the point of uh, teaching that we can worship a transformed piece of nature, piece of reality that is no longer what it was, but it has become something different. So there is a very complex dynamic going on there, but totally outside of clear biblical teaching whereby Jesus uh, establishes the, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper uh, in the context of the Jewish Passover as a remembrance of what God had done then in the Exodus that was a foreshadowing of the ultimate rescue of the people of God with the new Lamb of God uh, whose blood has been shed for us. As the old Passover was a remembrance act, so the new uh, Passover is meant to be a memory or a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Everything that is attached, uh, that goes beyond that, is a way of really uh, manipulating or going beyond what the Bible actually teaches. And fortunately, Early Christianity was trapped into this sacramentalizing of things that ended up in coming to this very odd physics whereby we have an object that is no longer what it looks like, although it still looks like what it was, but is no longer what it was and has become something that is very different, although our senses still perceive it as what it was. So difficult to explain, very illogical logic, but uh, uh, when we move beyond the Bible, we end up in all kinds of fancy uh, explanations. So in addition to these documents that we share with the Bible, baptism, taking of the Lord's Supper, yeah. um, even though those are done differently, we do share yeah. those. What about the other? Yeah, they were, they were, um, yeah, they were, um, they became part of Catholic teaching and practice uh, after 
the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent was the council that defined uh, the seven sacraments as binding practices and rituals for the church, uh, taking you from birth to death, so baptism being the first, the anointing of the sick being the last sacrament, and uh, following the development of your journey through uh, different uh, sacraments, some of them being a one-off one sacraments, baptism and uh, marriage and confirmation, and some of them being psychical or cyclical sacraments, the Eucharist, uh, penance, reconciliation, uh, something that you have to do on an ongoing basis. And uh, the Council of Trent uh, says that uh, these sacraments were all instituted by Christ. And uh, again, this is not what really the Bible uh, teaches, because Jesus did institute the Lord's Supper. Jesus uh, did not institute marriage per se. It's a, it's a creational ordinance. Of course, the Son of God was involved in creation, so there is a sense in which he was also involved in establishing it. But the Council of Trent speaks about Jesus instituting it as the, histor the historically incarnate Son. And uh, the anointing of the sick, where Jesus performed miracles and healings, but never really commands that this is going to be a sacrament. And uh, as far as confirmation, Jesus went through the mitzvah uh, ritual when he was 12, but never really commanded that uh, a 12-year-old boy should have been confirmed. And so they, they, they made something that is not really there in order to affirm the uh, reality of the sacrament. I would like to add some things uh, about this because um, this teaching is uh, is exactly what is happening in Latin America in all the countries in Latin America being 85% of uh, Catholics. However, at the beginning of the, of the last century, the church, the evangelical church, uh, decided several, um, several actions just to get away from uh, some great biblical uh, uh, practices during service. For example, decided not to use the word Eucharist because of the worship action that the Roman Catholic started doing it. But instead of teaching that it's not about worship, it's about experiencing the grace of God uh, through a symbol, uh, churches have left behind the importance of the sacrament. And to show the importance of these symbols, bread and wine, is they are very extremely important for the daily life of people, of new believers especially, you know, because they say, okay, they are just symbols. Okay, they are not important. Uh, we don't have, you know, the Lord's Supper uh, every week, for example, is not very common because 
because uh, we say, well, they have it every single month, so let us get away from that, and we are going to have it only once a month, once every six months, or something like that. You know, so we are getting away from the biblical uh, uh, understanding of this sacrament, for example, just because smells Roman Catholic. You know, so uh, practically speaking, we really need to to understand this teaching and to to teach this this teaching to the church uh, every single time when we have Lord's Supper. Yes, they are two symbols, but they are symbolizing the real presence, spiritually speaking, of Jesus Christ. But we don't emphasize that. We emphasize that there are just symbols because we don't want to emphasize, you know, we, we don't want to get closer to the Roman Catholic understanding. So in that way, the evangelical church is, is getting away from many different things just because it smells Roman Catholic, you know, and, and we are leaving behind even the, the Bible understanding of something the, of such importance like the sacraments, you know, the, uh, the water in baptism, you know, is only a water. Yes, it, it's not going to transform anything. Yes, but it's a symbol of what Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, you know, is going to do in the parents when he's a baby, in the, uh, with the parents, through the parents, in this baby. You know, so it's, it, we are not teaching. You know, in uh, in my church, the the background is a very deeply uh, Roman Catholic uh, uh, understanding. They re they are real Roman Catholics. They really are practicing, and they really read the Bible. They really, you know, they have you know all this uh, uh, deep. Uh, understanding of what they are doing, uh, wealthy people because uh, you know the Opus Dei, all these groups that are are real involved in what is the Roman Catholicism. So I'm using the word Eucharist instead of the Lord's Supper. Well, not instead, but in addition to the Lord's Supper, just for them to understand and to give me a. Uh, an opportunity to um, to teach the right understanding of the word Eucharist rather than just getting away of the word Eucharist. And I'm using it just to connect with them first and then to teach them the gospel in, through that word that they understand, you know, because they are not accustomed to the word Lord's Supper. You know, so in Spanish or, or English, whatever. So, yes, uh, they they don't understand. Well, they they are mistaking words, uh, meanings, and but we need to we need real uh, also to to start teaching the word like uh, like Leonardo said yesterday. We need to go to the Bible and the Bible teaching the right the right understanding of all these uh, Mary's uh, model, example, and, you know, and, uh, but not getting away from that. You know? So, well, this is my 
contribution. And the connection. Okay. Yeah, and I was raised Roman Catholic. And secondly, um, did you hear about the evangelical Catholic movement in the Latin American countries? Uh, could you comment on whether there is a difference between the Roman Catholicism and the evangelical Catholic? And what do you think that difference means? Well, um, there is some. Um, there, there, there is a movement that the, that they are talking about unity, like he explained it yesterday, uh, and um, and actually uh, there is a movement in especially South America, not Central America. No, no, I don't see much in Mexico, but in in South South America, uh, some in Brazil, uh, for example. But it's a movement that they they. They would like to see um, to see this unity, but just for the sake of you know disappearing differences, and this is the biggest mistake that we can do. Like he he did yesterday, like he explained it to us yesterday. You know? So, um, but in general, there is a great division uh, between the evangelicals and. The Roman Catholics. For example, in, in the States, in my four years uh, studying in, uh, in RTS in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, I understood that um, even pastors, uh, how, how they understand Roman Catholicism here in the States that is, is very, in, in many ways, are very similar than in, in, in Latin America, but in other ways are very different than in Latin America. So uh, in Latin America, a lot of mysticism, uh, they, they, mix, um, they mix a lot of, um, they, they call it miracles, they call it, you know, appearances, you know, on the walls, on the fire, and, you know, a lot of this kind of stuff with Jesus Christ or the Virgin Mary, you know. Uh, so they... You know the figure of a of a man or the figure of a of a of a lady with you know and they they put the name and everything so because of that is creating a big division between evangelicals and but but again the problem is that the evangelicals instead of uh, of uh, making the effort to teach they are getting away rather than teaching. So we are completely different, you know. So in, in our movement that we are uh, developing in Northern Mexico and Latin America, we are very careful with that, not to put the, the, the big division in the front, but to bring the gospel to the front you know, first. And, and then, you know, whatever is the reaction, they will ask questions and but um, uh, but uh, normally uh, there there is uh, we we uh, well we are very drastic and we say well the Roman Catholics are the non-believers and that's it it doesn't matter you know how how they are how deep they are in their 
Roman Catholicism, and maybe sometimes we make mistakes in that way, but uh, we. But what we are trying in our movements to do is to explain the gospel better, better for them. For example, using the word Eucharist in the, in the sacrament, uh, to, to make this connection, these bridges, to, to teach the gospel through the Lord's Supper. Too. So uh, I would say that that's a kind of response. Well, uh, references. Well, I don't think we can we can find any reference to you know to uh, specifically uh, to for uh, you know to to respond to that. But obviously, the gospel is the biggest reference for everything. You know, so uh, it's a huge church. Yes. But it's not really a church like the gospel is describing. It's not the body of Christ. It's an institution. And that is a, it's a big difference between what we call the church. The church is the body of Christ. The church is, is not the building, it's not the institution, it's not good news. Good news is you. You know, is people is is the people of God, uh, and but they when they refer to the church, the Roman Catholic Church, they refer to the institutions, to the structure, to the to the mandates, to the you know not not to the people in, in, in themselves. So, in this sense, in the structure, in the as an institution is is huge, but as the real sense of the church, uh, I don't think it's huge. It's uh, is uh, very limited, and uh, and on, on on the other side, um, uh, the biggest obstacle that uh, we have is uh, actually, like Paul says, is is not in them. It's not because of them. It's because of us. How we approach them for. Uh, uh, through the history of the evangelical church in Mexico, for example, and in Latin America, is the same thing. The, the approach uh, the evangelical church decides is um, a bad apologetic approach. You know, oh, you are idolatrous. You know, and this is the approach. You know? The Virgin Mary doesn't exist. You know. And, uh, and having, I like it, like what he said at the beginning, uh, we, need, we need really to honor 
what God is honoring in Mary, for example. But we dishonor that in order to, 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 to bring the gospel, you know. So we, we need to honor the, what, what God did in Mary, you know, and how Mary, Mary responded, you know. So, um, but the approach that we decided is, you know, well, the difference. The difference between you and me is that you are idolatrous, I'm not. And then Tim Keller says, well, what kind of idolatry are you talking about? Money, uh, people, your wife, your children, <laughs> you know, we are adulterous too. So, in, uh, in this way. So, it's, um, it's this way. How we approach is through friendly relationships, like we really love them in the way that the Lord love the world. So, do you want to say something? Maybe I can. Okay. To your first point, um, I agree there are not direct references, but in church history, the institution of the Catholic Church up to 40 years ago, 50 years ago, um, there was a consensus among Protestants on the fact that, as far as the Antichrist is concerned, uh, that figure uh, needed to be identified not with individual popes or individual people, but with the institution. And uh, that you know, from Martin Luther to John Calvin to Puritan, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, up to Martin Lloyd-Jones, and perhaps Arsis Pro. That has been the general consensus. Not identifying any individual pope. We're not talking about people, we're talking about the institution. And I think there is a point. I, I, there is a point when, if the Antichrist is going to be the one who speaks on behalf of Christ. The Pope is the only human institution that has the claims to speak infallibly on the name of Christ. No mullah, no muezzin, no Muslim leader will speak in the name of Christ. No secular leader, no uh, celebrity will speak in the name of Christ. As far as we know, they may be, they may appear, <laughs> but the only institution that claims to speak in the name of Christ is the papacy. So there is. This, I don't want. I know. I'm not wanting to go into apocalyptics and <laughs> uh, and and, uh, and I know that it can be easily misunderstood or caricatured. Or, but I think there is. We have to take notice of the fact that our forefathers have generally identified that institution, that uh, the, the Antichrist with that institution. And I think with good reason. This is not to say that all the Catholics are, uh, that every Catholic is, but just to say that we have to be aware. And this is the only world institution that can go everywhere in the world, is generally welcomed, generally appreciated, 
it is a worldwide institution that has the ability to speak into every single region. It is not China, it is not the US, it is not the United Nations, it is not Islam, which is very divided. It is the Roman Catholic Church that is universal and claims to have at the very top one who speaks infallibly in the name of Christ. So there are all the elements that help us to think about that perhaps our forefathers were not, were not as stupid as sometimes we think they were. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think the best answer goes to B.B. Uh, Warfield, this Princetonian great Protestant theologian of the 19th century. He was a great Augustine scholar. And he said, Augustine had two child, two children in his womb. <laughs> One was the Protestant. Augustine, pressing the grace of God, the primacy of grace, the, the fact that we are saved uh, because of God's grace. The other son was a Catholic son. The need, the need for the church, the sacraments. Uh, and uh, Warfield said in his own life, he always struggled with these two twins. And uh, it was with the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, that finally the delivery happened. And uh, the Protestant son of Augustine was first. And so, uh, in a way, the Luther and Calvin solved the issues that Augustine couldn't, couldn't resolve. Uh, but we have to be aware that he was not the, the Roman Catholic that the Catholics want him to be. He was uh, a sincere believer, a great theologian, with mistakes, with limits, but Warfield shows that he was primarily a forerunner of the Protestant Reformation, with some mistakes, but basically being the, the belonging to the, the, the Orthodox uh, Orthodox Church, not being a Roman Catholic, as we understand it. Yeah. But this is a great question because uh, we use uh, books from St. Augustine. Uh, city of God, City of Man, for example, it's a great book. And, uh, and it's a great also connection with the Roman Catholics. You know? So it's a great question because Sometimes, uh, usually, historically, evangelicals, again, they say, oh, San Agustin, no, 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 nothing with him, or San Francis, or, you know, so uh, my church is called uh, San Pedro Church, San Peter's. My presbytery is already telling me, well, why you are calling San Pedro, it's a Roman Catholic name, you know, San Pedro, Peter's, oh, it's a, it was a, 
uh, <laughs> a good mentor. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good question because we need to be careful and uh, we identify as a Roman Catholic, but uh, it's not, and uh, and we can we can learn a lot from uh, good people like him. Exactly on the basis of his blurred and confused view of justification by faith. Mm -hmm. So he's not advocating for the Protestant biblical view whereby we are justified uh, by grace alone through faith alone, but he sees justification as more of a process making us part of a people. And in this way, he comes very close to the Catholic understanding that it, the justification is a process, it's not something that happens once and for all at the beginning of our lives. But he has a blurred view, and this helps, uh, makes him uh, very close to the ecumenical movement and to this rapprochement with Rome. It's easy to get kind of lost in here because uh, I have a good friend who is Catholic, and he and I went to Eastern Evangelism Program together. And I asked him the two questions, and he answered flawless. I didn't understand that until yesterday. You know, I heard him say, he said, Grace, I believe. Yeah. In some of the cases, he starts to diverge into two different paths. And what those same words mean to the two different That's right. Well, thank you for your questions. That was really helpful. Final question. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> 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 I just say in primary, you said that the mother was very extremely important, and if you say something bad against the mother, you really, really insult it. Is, is that true to the Catholic Church? Is that because of the worship of Mary or the praying to Mary? Is that what drives that? Does that make it more difficult to talk to that from? Well, uh, yes, it's related completely. Uh, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church really is shaping the culture or has been shaping the culture in Latin America. Um, it's no longer right now because they are struggling with a lot of stuff and especially uh, doctrinal stuff. But, uh, and the, the Church of Jesus Christ is growing. Obviously, it's, it's, it's a contract. Uh, counterculture now, but uh, but it's very deep still. Maybe I I think they can they can leave a lo a lot of things behind, but the concept of mother uh, because it's culture and religion is still very powerful. So uh, when we when we talk about 
motherhood, when we talk about uh, uh, drastically uh, against the concept of the mother of God, you know, is, is maybe the, one of the biggest insults that we can have and we can get away from them. You know? So uh, we need to be very creative how to, how to come to the Bible, to the gospel, and, but at the same time the gospel is teaching us how not to, in, to insult them because the gospel is already something that is going to insult them, you know. So why we need to stress these insults, you know. So the gospel is already there, you know. So uh, I think you mentioned unnecessarily uh, insulting them, you know. So, um, yeah, uh, but this is very connected. Just, just one example, sorry, one example in, in, in Latin countries, for example, in Mexico, is uh, very common that husband can hit their wives, but don't touch my mother. I can defend my mother to everybody, but I can hit and have a violence with my wife. That, that kind of uh, issue is in the culture, and, and that's one of the ways that the Roman Catholic has been shaping the culture in that sense, you know, for yeah. my mother, no, don't touch my mother. But I can hit yeah. my wife, my daughters, but not my mother. And in that way, is is how by centuries is this worship of the motherhood. And that's pretty common in Mexico. There are similarities and uh, differences. Uh, the language was different. Latin was the language of the Catholic Church, the West. Greek was the language of the Orthodox. And with that, a different mindset. Um, the East was even more mystical than the West. And so it has developed uh, streams of mysticism that are also part of the Catholic Church, but even more pronounced. Uh, they don't have a unified institution. There are several um, centers that uh, makes it uh, less unified. And um, they're more tied to territorial regions than uh, to the Catholicity of the Catholic Church. But in 1965, they basically um, over, overcame the past uh, excommunications that uh, were uh, issued in the 12th century. And so they are now in almost full reconciliation in the Catholic and the Orthodox. The only remaining thing has to do with the role of the Pope. Because the Orthodox don't like the idea of having one single head, but having different heads according to the regions, they don't really like the idea that he is the one 
presiding over the men. So that's the only, I would say, secondary issue that is left. But they share the same, basically the same sacramental uh, theology. They share the same ideology. Although the Orthodox do not recognize the two last dogmas, Marian dogmas, they believe that Mary was assumed, they believe that Mary was immaculately conceived, but they don't uh, accept these as dogmas, as unchangeable truths. But, uh, uh, so there are similar... <coughs> oh yes, very much so. Thank you for fielding our questions. That was very helpful.